Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall and my co-host Bruce Weiner is with me as well today. And we have a special guest. This is Keith Whitaker, and he is coming to you from the, I should make sure I'm saying this correctly, from Wise Council Research, correct? That's correct. Excellent. Well, Keith, good morning and welcome to the show. Well, good this morning. Money good morning podcast. We have a great episode. Hey, good morning to both of you. <laughs> I know. Two Rachel of and recorded Rachel. <laughs> I, I, that was crazy. All right. Well, we are really excited to have you on the show today. And the reason is that we are talking today about something that you've been doing work with for a very long time. And I'm really excited to bring in your knowledge of working with multi-generational families and thinking about the family as an enterprise, thinking about how to really pass on wealth and make sure that it's not just money about you're thinking about keeping money in the family and not having it dissipate or go from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations as you talk about or as that old proverb is and really thinking if I love my kids and I love my grandkids and I really want what's best for them how can I make sure that what I do in my life today isn't just benefiting me and I'm living well on the wealth that I create but how can I make sure that it lifts and rises that those generations that come after me and really help to give them a foundation for success. And so today, that's what we're going to be talking about. Wonderful. I look forward to it. Awesome. So let's just talk a little bit about who is Keith Whitaker, and I will just give you a little bit of a background here. So Keith is president of Wise Council Research. He's consulted for many years with leaders of enterprising families. Now, he really helps them to have a succession plan in place in their family and think about how to develop the next generation talent. Now, what's really interesting about that is the focus on the next generation. We're going to bring that out in the show today. He also helps them communicate around estate planning. Now, estate planning can be something that we think of as just this legal uh, set and forget it thing, and really it's not. It's very dynamic, and there's a lot of communication needed, and that's one of the things that we're going to be discussing today as well. He has a background in education and philanthropy, and he is has also served as a managing director at Wells Fargo Family Wealth. He's an adjunct professor of management at Vanderbilt University and an adjunct professor of philosophy at Boston College and a director of a private foundation. Now, he's also written in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Financial Times, Claremont Review of Books, and Philanthropy Magazine. And he is also a author and co-author of multiple books, one specifically that we'll be bringing up today, which is Complete family wealth that I have read and was completely inspired by. So I really thank you for taking the time to be with us and our audience today and really be able to share the value of the work that you have been doing. Well, thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Bruce. It's great to be with you. Yeah, Keith, what we're really trying to do is convey an educational way of thinking that we don't think is is done very well here in the United States. And, And you probably have a better perspective, whether it's even done very well across the world. Um, what, what we're trying to get to, uh, into the culture of the, of the United States people is that uh, financial education doesn't happen normally in a family just by 
osmosis. It has to be discussed. It has to be, there has to be plans, guidelines, so on and so forth. And that's why we're so excited to have you on today, because I think this is an expertise that you can share with our listeners and really come to it from a person who's been doing this for, for what, a generation now, at least probably a couple generations. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm happy to. Looking forward to it. It's a very important topic. And uh, really, when we talk with family members and family leaders, mm-hmm. we ask them, what's really on your mind? What's really keeping you up at night? It, you know, as you dig down into that, you eventually get to that concern. What's this money going to do to my grandchildren and to generations after that? Is it going to ruin them? And that's mm-hmm. exactly the concern that we try to address. Well, I love that you even bring that up because I think that is a fear and that is a worry and something that almost has people saying, I don't even know if I want to leave an inheritance to my kids and my grandkids. And yet it's so powerful and impactful to be able to do that and to do it well. So let's go ahead and first tell us a little bit about your backstory and how you came into doing this specific work. Sure. Well, my story is a little different than most people in this field. I don't come from a legal or investment background or accounting or the like. Um, So the foundation of my work is actually, as you mentioned, philosophy, particularly political philosophy. And really the central question in political philosophy is how do we live a good life as individuals and as a community? And those are the questions that I address with family leaders. Because after all, before you think about, well, how am I going to live that life? You have to be clear about what it is. And when it comes to wealth and its impact on living a good life, I've always been very moved by uh, actually words that Socrates, so the founder of political philosophy 2,500 years ago, uh, said. He said that he would go to young people in Athens, the young rich people in particular, so the rising generation of Athenian families, and he would say to them, you know what? Wealth doesn't make a person or a city uh, great and powerful and virtuous and excellent. It's excellence or virtue that makes an individual or a city wealthy. If you Mm. think about that, it's kind of of a strange thought, right? In other words, no matter how big your bank account, uh, if you don't have excellence, if you don't have excellence of mind, of character, then in fact, you're going to be poor. The more you have, the more you're likely to misuse it or hurt yourself and others uh, with it. So, and unfortunately, I've seen in many families that that truth play out, that the more people have, in fact, the more... Uh, they make uh, their lives very difficult. So that was the foundation of my work. And then personally, I had the opportunity to experience the impact of financial wealth and family firsthand. So one of my grandfathers uh, worked for a great American company, United Parcel Service, UPS, uh, back in the Depression. He literally rode shotgun. So he grew Mm -hmm. up very poor, got a job with UPS in San Francisco, and uh, he rode shotgun. And at the time in the Depression, uh, the company sometimes didn't have cash flow. So they would pay employees and stock certificates. And so for the rest of his life, he held on to that United Parcel Service stock. So by the time he passed away, he had a pretty significant chunk of uh, UPS stock. And he then left my mother and, and, and her uh, sister and my siblings and I with this question of like, what do we do with this? How do we navigate uh, financial wealth uh, together? And so figuring out trust, figuring out a foundation and so forth. So it was really quite a learning experience for me kind of in my uh, mid to uh, late, early adulthood, as it were. Oh, so, wow. so for me personally, in my early 30s, I decided to take the experience in teaching and philosophy and combine it with my experience with wealth management and really try to help other families and individuals navigate that journey of wealth. And so 
I did that for some time, in, as you mentioned, in the context of financial firms like Wells Fargo. I set up one of the first in-house practices uh, in a financial services company to deal with family communication, family governance, uh, those kind of discussions. And then about 10 years ago or so, I decided to pursue that independently through wise counsel research. And you know, the independence being very important in terms of thinking, writing, speaking, without dealing with compliance and legal and so forth that you get in a big financial services company, and being able to work with whom I wanted to really in the best interest of uh, my families. And so wise counsel research is a way to kind of pull together that practice and also other senior uh, practitioners in the field who want to do that same kind of work in a very independent manner. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. We also set up a nonprofit arm of Wise Council Research to support producing and disseminating our research. Because this is actually a field, as much as it's in the media and in kind of public imagination, it's a pretty under-researched uh, area of life. So private wealth or philanthropy. And at heart, I still remain a teacher and a thinker, so that's a very important part of my life is, is continuing that research and writing and so forth. So that's a, a thumbnail sketch of kind of how I got here from, uh, from there. Well, I think that's just really interesting. I mean, from multiple fronts, A, it was something that was experiential for you. It wasn't just a philosophy. But I love that you came from the philosophical side because it definitely shows that you that gives a context even to what I read in the book that is extremely philosophical, which I think is part of the reason why I was so attracted to this idea that you can truly create that excellence and that virtue. And how do you not only have that in yourself, but how do you foster that and pass it on to the next generation so that they can be wealth creators, not just receiving wealth that maybe you have built, but how do they perpetuate and continue on this long-term building cycle of wealth creation. So can you share in your experience, what would you say are some of the qualities of successful families that do keep wealth in the family for multiple generations? What do you see rising to the surface? And I'm sure you could answer this question in a million different ways, but what are maybe some of the things that you see most significantly as a common thread? Well, yeah, it is a hard question, Rachel. I mean, because there are a whole bunch of practices that my colleagues and I have seen as really key to the successful passing on of financial and more than financial wealth. And here I would just mention as an aside, um, a recent book that one of my colleagues wrote, uh, his name is Dennis Jaffe. He's a researcher and consultant in in, uh, to uh, family businesses uh, within Wise Council Research. And he wrote a book called Borrowed from Your Grandchildren. And it looks at families around the world, about 100 families that we've studied around the world that have successfully passed on a major family enterprise through at least three generations. So we call oh, them 100-year families or, or generative families. And the key to this is that usually people talk about what goes wrong, right? All right, what did these people do? What did those people do that caused a disaster? Um, because that makes good headlines. And it's, uh, it's, it's interesting and engaging, especially for, for us and our envy. Um, but what Dennis did and what we did in the research uh, behind it was to look at what went right. You know, what did these families do that helped them succeed? And so that book uh, collects these practices from these families. But um, you know, to answer your question in less than a book-length form, um, you know, just a few points that I'd single out apart from things that we might end up talking about later. Um, first of all, families who succeed in passing on complete family wealth, not just money, but also excellence, 
really do communicate. They communicate about their financial plans, about their estate plans, about their giving. And that's really the main point of our first book, Cycle of the Gift, that namely, if you're making gifts to your children or grandchildren without communicating about them, kind of behind the scenes or sort of, you know, with very little discussion, you're not really making a gift. You're making what we call a transfer or even worse, these gifts are going to become meteors as we describe them in the mm -hmm. book. Meteors that sort of blast into people's lives uh, without any preparation. That can be extremely destructive um, to young adults or even to older adults. Um, so people who do this well, they lay a foundation of developing character and financial literacy in their children. But in addition to that, at the appropriate point, they do talk about their plans. And most simply, they look at the gift from the eyes of the recipient or the potential recipient and ask, is this person ready to receive well? Is this person ready to integrate the gift into his or her life? And if not, what can I do to help them develop that uh, capacity? So I know a lot of parents really hesitate to communicate because they're afraid. They're afraid that, that talking about wealth is going to disincentivize their children or spoil their children, et cetera. And that makes some sense, especially when children are young. But as they get older, as this is going to be a reality in their lives, uh, the silence is counterproductive. It's a big opportunity cost uh, that parents incur by not talking. And it can build up deep anger, resentment, confusion in children who eventually receive these gifts. So that's mm -hmm. one point is really the importance of communication. Uh, a second point that it make that's related is relates to trusts. Now, in uh, America, in other countries influenced by English common law, trusts are like the number one vehicle, right, for holding wealth and transferring wealth uh, for lots of good reasons. But at the same time, um, trusts can be something that really make it harder to do that well because uh, family members look at them as just legal things, these complicated documents, can't even read it and understand it. Um, so as a result, many beneficiaries grow up not knowing why is this money in trust? What does that even mean? Um, what is mine you know, versus the trusts or you know, others in my family? Uh, they feel controlled by trustees. They feel fundamentally mistrusted by mm. the existence of trusts. And so I've known beneficiaries who've spent basically their whole adult lives fighting with their trustees, trying to get the money out of that box. And I mean, if you think, is that wealth? Or is that poverty to, mm -hmm. to spend your life that way? Um, so the answer to this problem is not to get rid of trust. I mean, there are lots of good reasons for them, but to really focus on making trust human relationships, not just these legal documents. So to encourage beneficiaries to learn about, to understand their trusts, uh, to select trustees who really want to make the growth and flourishing of the beneficiary their main task, their main goal, not just kind of protecting the money, and to really encourage ongoing and regular communication between trustees and beneficiaries. And finally, if the trust creator or creators are still alive, to really uh, thoughtfully and clearly lay out your wishes for the trust. What kind of impact do you want it to have in people's lives? So beyond the asset protection or state tax sufficiency of it, what do you want this trust to do in the lives of the beneficiaries? State those wishes clearly. I've seen that be so helpful 
to beneficiaries and future trustees in integrating the trust into their lives. So those are just a couple of points. And, and again, as you said, we could go on about many other practices, but, but gifts and trusts are so important in the lives of families with significant wealth. That's why we focused in on them because they're so under-discussed and that as a result can have very negative consequences uh, in individuals' lives. I think there's just so much that I could share on the back end of that as well. And for the sake of being able to keep hearing the wisdom just coming from you, I'll keep this really short, but a piece of the reason that we brought you onto the show in the first place is that I had, we have one daughter who's eight years old. We put an estate plan in place around the time that she was born. And we thought this is really what we need to be able to set up. But at the same time, we realized then later on, I had a, another baby and that was about eight years later. I actually almost died during the course of that labor and delivery. And then after that, just really looking at what would happen if I was no longer here? What would we exactly want to happen for our children? And how do we not only make sure that the assets that we have and the life insurance death benefit that we have and the trust that we have, how do we make sure that more than just those those tactical, tangible products and uh, legal structure, how do we have more than just that? How do we make sure that we can help them to flourish and have this life that we wanted to create together, no matter if we're here or not? And how do we make sure that that is a foundation that grounds them going forward? And I just, I love how you talked about laying out the wishes. And I think sometimes this can be overwhelming for somebody to say, how in the world do I do all of this? I don't see anyone around me making strides in these things. It's not something that people are talking about regularly. And that's one of the reasons why I do want to make this public information. I want to make this something that is more so the norm that we set our intention to not be afraid of our own mortality, but be able to say, how can I make sure that everything that's in my mind and my heart and my value system, how do I transfer that to my kids? How do I do that really well and set them up for the greatest amount of success by having this fabulous communication, by having a trust that is relationship built and, and making sure that I'm laying out exactly what we want to happen so they don't feel that tension of, I don't have ownership or I don't have control or mom and dad, we're just out to you know make things difficult for me, but really thrive and flourish. So Bruce, is there anything you want to share there? I, I want to make sure that I'm opening the door and not just over talking you. Well, I think, I think Keith, we were talking before the show about my experience being at a, um, a private Catholic high school in St. Louis where currently, you know, the tuition and all the fees are about $24,000 a year. So this is a, this is a, a, a an atmosphere of families that, um, in the in the St. Louis area, they, it actually comes what I would call newer money, instead of older money. And uh, this has come from uh, professionals that have worked really hard for their money, and they want to then uh, preserve that money because they work really hard for it. But then the their children, the first generation after have that money, um, they don't. In some cases, they don't know that it was. Uh, because it was really hard. It's just always been there. Right. right. And that is, uh, that is an explosive environment, I think, if, it, if, if people don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. they, they ha I, I often tell um, people my philosophy on a lot of things on life is you don't realize you need a green light until you have a red light. I mean, if, if, you, if you've never experienced things, you can't really blame the receiver. You can't blame the person that all of a sudden this meteor that you talked about was often given this. 
Mm -hmm. And uh, communication, though, we think, well, communication, let's just talk about it. But as you already stated, the trust can be a resentful thing because it's like, well, why can't I make my own decisions on this? Mm -hmm. And uh, this, is, this is where I think even when you are trying to uh, raise independent thinkers by giving them all this information and then put re uh, restrictions on how they can use their trust money, it's like, wait a minute here. Right. It's a very difficult um, thing to think about in a process. So how do you see the uh, different languages of the trust that you've seen? Uh, what are some of the good ones and bad ones? Or does it simply, to me, I think the best thing you can do, and this is self-serving because I am a trustee on several trusts, is that the best thing you do is pick really good trustees. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, it's really uh, both and, right? I mean, that certainly the selection of wise trustees is absolutely crucial to bringing the intention of the trust to life, right? Mm -hmm. Because the, the trustee is the one who's tasked with that, uh, that, that purpose, that goal. Um, as far as the trust document itself, um, so one of my colleagues is uh, Jay Hughes, who is kind of the leader, founder of this field of uh, family wealth consulting. And uh, Jay was a, a practicing estate a planning, a estate planning attorney for his whole career. And actually, he's, uh, his father was an estate planning attorney and his grandfather was an estate planning attorney. So he had a deep tradition and understanding of the power of estate planning. And uh, for the last 10 years of his active attorney career, Jay made a point of not working with uh, any trusts in which the client wasn't willing to begin the trust with something like the statement, this trust is a gift of love. Its purpose Ooh, is to enhance awesome. the lives of the beneficiaries. Um, so if you think about that statement, this trust is a gift of love, its purpose is to enhance the lives of the beneficiaries. Think about it from the, re the recipient's point of view, from the beneficiary picking up that document and reading that. That's very powerful. That's much different than the experience that 99.9% uh, .9 of beneficiaries have when they look at their trust document and they either can't read it at all or they get the feeling like, you know, I think a lot of this document is about keeping me away from the money, right? Mm. And it's, it's a mistrustful, um, protective, defensive uh, stance uh, that they get from that document. So if you're creating trust now, I would strongly encourage people to think about including in there some sort of, you know, what the attorneys call precatory language, sort of uh, a, a kind of language that's not of a legal nature, but more expressing the, the wishes, the, the prayers, the hopes of the, the giver uh, in the trust. If you've already got trust that you can't change, you can certainly, um, as Rachel was saying before, you can write down letters of wishes or letters of intent, as they're often called. And those don't need to be a book. It can be a one-page document of you know, five points or so. Another strategy I've seen people use is that they will write out, um, uh, in, in, sometimes with the help of somebody interviewing them or recording them, they'll record something of their own life story, right? Where did this money come from? How did, we, how did we acquire it? Maybe what were some of the disasters along the way that we had to then overcome? Um, they get across the values behind the, the family history and the growth of the wealth. So that it isn't just, as you were saying, Bruce, this kind of environment that's given. You just say, oh, it's, you know, it's good stuff, fun stuff, nice vacations, nice vehicles, nice houses, you know, nice schools. It's a story 
of hard work, of adversity, of overcoming adversity, of working with others, appreciating others, um, you know, being the recipient of others' kindness and help along the way. So that, that story can be an adjunct that's extremely powerful then to the trust document. So those are all different methods. Again, people don't have to be authors to do this. They can work with somebody interviewing them. I've seen people have younger family members just interview them and record the, the interview, whether that's by video or, or by, by Zoom or the like. Uh, that's an easy way to kind of get this stuff out there uh, and help it create something of an ecosystem that gives life to the documents. I, I, oh, would, I, I, I would encourage people to actually record voices or better yet today's video because in my career whenever there's been a question of well this is the trust document well that's not really what my parents meant when they when they said that uh, you're, you're interpreting the, them different I knew my parents is a couple of and so if you could actually have it in their words um, where they can see it I before this even comes you know as a problem um, I think it would be better and better yet it would be even to just encourage the parents to actually say it directly to them beforehand, not even in a, not even in a formal trust situation. Um, let's, let's, let's take a little bit of a 360 before we move forward on this. What would you say to a family that's kind of the exact opposite who says, um, I've done everything I, for my, my children. I, I don't feel like I need to help them at all. Matter of fact, I think it's really bad that I'm going to leave them a lot of money. So I'm going to leave them a minuscule amount or I'm not leaving them anything. They have to build everything. Everything's going to charity, so on and so forth. What would you say from a social impact, uh, that exact opposite kind of thing? Sure. Well, you know, I, I've worked with family members uh, who take that point of view. Um, I, I worked with one uh, family leader who had made this very, very significant wealth himself. And he liked to say that I am free uh, not to give and you are free not to take, right? That there's freedom on both sides here, right? And so that if he changed his mind to not give in the future, that's his choice. If they, if his children in this case, to uh, change their mind not to, to, to take in the future and be independent, that's perfectly respectable too. Um, so I completely understand the perspective. The danger here is that it's very uh, hard to raise and prepare children for that choice if what you're doing is living a life of affluence, right? Because our lives are made up of habits, of, of acting and thinking, those habits translate themselves into our characters, and you can't just suddenly change those on a dime. So the people who I have seen do this well, who, who really say, I think the greatest gift I can give to my children is not to give them excess wealth, but to give them the opportunity and the incentive to uh, pursue their own life paths and be independent. People who have done that well have done it intentionally from a very early age in their child's lives. Mm -hmm. And if they do have uh, affluent surroundings, whether houses, vacations, etc., they have communicated from childhood to their children, this is because of the work I'm doing. That's why we have this available. If you want this in your future, then you will need to make choices yourself in order to create the financial wherewithal to do this. And that 
we'll go on this vacation, but don't expect to go on vacations after you're an adult and independent unless you're paying for it. Whereas one, uh, one uh, family member I knew uh, who had a private aircraft said, this is my aircraft. While you're living with me, I may choose to allow you to use it. If you want an aircraft in your future, though, you need to work to make your own money to pay for it, right? So that can work out and, and it can, you know, can lead to some tough discussions and some struggles along the way, but it, at least people's eyes are open and they're clear. What doesn't work is to raise children in that environment, get, build up an expectation, whether mm. desired or not, right? And many parents will say, well, I, I don't want them to have that expectation. Well, look, they're 30 years old, right? They, they have grown up and lived a certain way. And so by building up that expectation and then pulling the rug out, it can lead to some awful fights and, and real break in, in family life together. Or yeah. I'm sure the fragmentation is just, that's not the ideal that you want. I mean, ultimately we want strong families, not just wealth that continues, but we want strong families. Go ahead, Bruce. Well, I was just saying, um, fragmentation um, in my educational experience happens, and I know this seems obvious to everybody, but from lack of communication, it re it, but it really does. And it starts at a, it should start at a very young age. You know, a lot of times people say to me, well, I'm going to wait to have the discussion until they can understand it. Children understand things at a very, very, very young age. I mean, we're talking one, two years old here uh, when it comes to money situations. And I had one particular uh, acquaintance who had two daughters. And at a very young age, he started talking to them about money. And mm -hmm. he, he, now some of our female listeners out here might not appreciate what I'm about to say, but he, he downplayed the importance of an opulent wedding to them. He, and he, but he did it from a practical standpoint. He said, you know, uh, we, want, we want you to have a, a great family in the future. And he did this when they were really young. And he says, I'm putting away money for, for your future, not for your wedding. He said, however, when you do, when your wedding comes about, you can make the decision to take all this money and spend it on this wedding and then have nothing left over. <laughs> or you can take all this money and start your future with your new husband. And both of them chose to have a very modest wedding and then have this kind of nest egg to, to start their new life with. I don't believe that would have happened if he would have started discussing with them at age 18. Oh, no. Um, and when, when you think, well, they can understand now, and I don't want to talk, even talk to them about weddings. They may not choose to get married, you know, and all this kind of, kind of stuff. So I would just like to, to hear your thoughts about at what age you should start talking to um, family members about this. Sure. Well, I, I think if we step back, we're thinking not only about talking here, right? But, but yes, but the, the development, uh, I'd, uh, the word I'd use would be the development of character, of a habit yes. of choosing uh, uh, rightly. And so the person you just described was trying to help mold his daughter's character in such a way that they would make a truly thoughtful, informed choice about a very major life event, you know, one that has consequences for their marriage and the rest of their relationship. And so it was not only the, the, the speech, but I'm sure also the, the behavior that he modeled for his uh, children. And so that goes to, as you were saying, Bruce, 
to a very young age. So thinking about how we behave in front of our children with regard to money and spending, how we behave in front of our children with regard to how we treat others, right? How we treat, uh, whether it's employees, uh, people working in the home or around the home or so forth, children pick up on that very early. And sometimes a very painful experience for parents is when they see, you know, maybe a preteen or teenager behaving rudely to a teacher or to a household staff or such, and they say, how, how in the world did this happen? Well, actually, if you look at kind of the way you've been treating other people, you might see the answer. Um, mm-hmm. So the modeling of behavior comes first, starts very early. Um, the discussion of choices, uh, usually for little children, can be framed in one's own choices, right? About, mm-hmm. you know, how, how did you pursue either work or relationships or a wedding or the like. Children love to hear stories about their parents, you know, particularly if they're kind of stories that that involve uh, some difficulty, right, in Mm -hmm. the the parent's life. So using those stories as a way to convey your values, right? And and also not to be too heavy-handed or to put too much burden on yourself about them. You know, one of the things that uh, one of my colleagues likes to say is that values are caught, not taught, right? Now, I mean, we know that values are taught too, but the way that they are acquired early on is that children just kind of pick them up out of the air, right, by what we do and what we say. So you know, being mindful but not being preachy uh, is, is important uh, in, this, in this effort. Um, so all of those are, are parts of uh, developing character around money that I would say are kind of the pre-teen, pre-kind of cognitively complex uh, areas of work. And so to your point, Bruce, parents who are saying, well, I'm going to wait till they're, whatever, 13 or so to talk about this stuff. Well, then they get to be 13 and we know what 13-year-olds are like, right? And so then, then they say, oh, I'm, I'm going to wait till after teenage years because this, this is crazy. I, I can't talk to them about anything, right? So then I'm waiting till they're 18, 19 or so. Well, then they're off in college and they have all this stuff going on. I don't want to burden them with this, right? So then I'll wait till after college, they're 20, 21. Well, you know, now look, they're cooked, right? I mean, they are who they are at that point. And, and if you haven't done any of this work or you've done, you've modeled behavior that you yourself find problematic, that's a very hill, uh, steep hill to climb. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting. Just, I have an eight-year-old and so we're not past that. We're not into teenage years yet, but it's amazing how many conversations about money have come up already. And granted, we're in a financial space and that's the work that we teach, but I can tell you, we've just had the most insightful and intuitive conversations where she is asking these questions that I thought I had no idea that someone your size would be thinking about these things. And yet she's figuring out her own entrepreneurial wings. I mean, there's just so much to this that I do believe needs to start super young. And in another piece of this, you don't know how long you have to be able to teach these things. I think one of the main, um, challenges that I saw after my experience of almost dying was this thought of, I have young children now. I want the next 85 years to be, you know, to see this this family grow to its own maturity. I want to be able to see their milestones and see my grandkids and great, great grandkids. We don't know that that's all guaranteed. And we know that our own mortality is a fact. We just don't know when it's going to happen. And so there's this idea that I need to be able to give them as much as possible so that whenever that point is that I no longer have the ability to impact their life and I'm not here on this earth anymore, that they'll be able to continue on 
in this character. So there's kind of two parts of a question I want to ask you. One is that you talk in the book about needing to be this mindset of being a first generation wealth creator in order to create this total or complete family wealth. There's another side of this that the focus needs to always be on the rising generation or the generation coming next. So I know I'm throwing you a very complex question, but can you talk about why do we need to think, why does every generation need to think of themselves as first generation wealth creator and why do we need to focus on the rising generation? And then I want to go into character development. Okay, sure. We'll just, uh, we'll take on a few small topics in the next 20 minutes. <laughs> um, so, well, so first of all, in, on the, the mindset, um, you know, one thing I would say is that it's important not so much to think of yourself as a first generation wealth creator, because being a wealth creator is not the path for everybody. Right. I mean, it takes a particular set of, of nature and then skills to be entrepreneurial, risk taking um, and focused in the way that wealth creation demands. And that's not for everybody. So what we encourage rather is to have a first generation mindset. Mm. Now, what does first generation mindset mean? It really means seeing yourself as the first generation. That doesn't mean you know, ignoring that people came before you or that there are others who are going to come after you that you have responsibilities towards. But the, what we're kind of pushing against with saying have a first-generation mindset is that wealth in a family can have the effect of making everybody other than the wealth creator feel lesser or unimportant, right? So that the whole focus becomes the wealth creator or the wealth creator's generation, and everything else is kind of like an, an afterthought. So saying you have a first-generation mindset in your life means that your choices matter, so take them seriously. Now, that, then, so good. that translates directly into the other part of your question, Rachel, about you know, why do we talk about rising generation? And here, again, part of our goal in writing these books was to really shape the vocabulary in our field. And we noticed you know, that for the last 20-plus years or so, a lot of people have said, oh, it's so important to attend to the next generation. We need, you know, the next generation needs to learn this, or we need to educate the next generation about that, and so forth. And about, um, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, I was at a conference giving a talk, and this young woman who was from a, a family of wealth came up to me afterwards, and she said, you know, why do people always refer to me as next generation? She's like, don't I have my own life? You know, what am I next to, right? And so that was kind of a light bulb moment where made really clear that speaking about someone as next can be very diminutive or demeaning, right? It makes you feel like, all right, I'm kind of, again, an afterthought. I'm mm. next to the person who really mattered here. And so that's why we decided let's really push this term of rising generation rather than next uh, generation and saying that every generation has its room to rise and particularly for younger family members in a family with significant wealth or a business, that rising means facing their own struggles, finding their own work, uh, forging their own healthy relationships, learning to communicate in a responsible way. That means both listening, right? But also having your voice, finding your voice. And, and for the older generation or the controlling generation, making some room for the voice of rising generation family members hence the title of our book, The, the Voice of the Rising Generation. Um, and again, part of the reason that we push that thought is that what we see so often is that the great respect and, and almost sort of worship 
of the wealth creator in a family can cause everyone else to feel like, I don't really have anything to say. Like, I don't really have anything worthwhile. Nobody really wants to hear from me anyway. They want to talk about dad or grandpa or whatever. Um, so a silence kind of falls on the rest mm. of the family. And what happens if that silence continues from one generation to the next is that people don't feel like it's, it's not really important for me to learn, right? It's not important for me to strive. I don't really matter. Eventually, then people deplete both the qualitative capital of the family, um, you know, their skills, knowledge, abilities, and the quantitative capital of the family. So, I mean, to put it most succinctly, we have seen the silence of the rising generation to be the absolutely crucial cause of the failure of families to continue from one generation to the next in successfully stewarding uh, their wealth. That's profound right there. You're saying the silence of that rising generation and, mm -hmm. and that being the cause of the fragmentation or the dissemination of mm -hmm. family wealth. And mm -hmm. so how do you mentioned something about the qualitative and the quantitative capital. What are the five types of capital that you talk about? Because I think this is really profound in terms of understanding what even is wealth that you're passing on. Right, right. Well, so again, a big topic, but to try to pull it down uh, to size here. So when we wrote Complete Family Wealth, this was the kind of core concept was that, yes, financial wealth is clearly important. It's, it's like the engine that allows family members uh, to pursue various dreams, work, philanthropy, business, so forth. But financial wealth, as much as we attend to it, is only one part of the complete family wealth. The other part, the non-quantitative part, is what we call this qualitative wealth. And my colleagues and I have tried to kind of help family members get their arms around this because it can feel kind of nebulous. It can feel pretty airy. And so what we did was we came up with five forms of qualitative wealth. And they're not meant to be exact, comprehensive, you know, rigid definitions, but more guideposts to get family members thinking about, well, where are we strong and where are we weak? Where do we have work to do? So just very briefly, the, the five forms of qualitative wealth, we start with human capital. So that's the capital in the individuals uh, as their physical, emotional well-being, their sense of purpose in life, their learning and their ability to learn and share their learning with each other. So those are some of the elements of human capital. Mm. Then we also talk about financial education capital. And that's, in a way, it's kind of a subset of human capital, but we pulled it out because financial matters are so important in families with wealth. So that includes, say, members' ability to manage their personal finances, um, to invest, to evaluate advisors, uh, to understand the family's wealth structures. I mean, these are all pretty fundamental matters in families with a business or with significant wealth. And yet many people just have never had a chance to develop uh, those areas of expertise or knowledge. So there's financial education capital. Then third, we talk about relationship capital. And that's kind of the core capital for the family as a family. So it's the mm -hmm. member's ability to communicate, to collaborate, make decisions together, um, to respect each other, to welcome each other as members of the family, whether they're biological family members, spouses, rising generation family members. 
Um, so typically when you see families in conflict or in dissolution, it's because of very low amount of relationship capital in the family. Mm. And then fourth, social capital, that's where we step from the family to its connection to the larger world. So do family members have a, a sense of larger purpose, uh, activity in philanthropy or in a business that, that makes something, that has some effect uh, in the world? Are they able to explain their wealth to themselves and to others, you know, and to and justify it and such? So that's part of the social capital. And then finally, fifth is legacy capital. We've called this spiritual capital in the past too. And like, I like to think of it as it's kind of a measure of the family sense of something larger than themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So here we look at the family member's ability to define a vision for themselves and for the family. Uh, we look at the ability to tell stories about the family that locates the family within a larger community, um, the ability to share those stories with each other and to talk about what really matters to them. And then also, very importantly, family members' ability to express gratitude to them, to each other and for uh, benefits that they've received from others outside the family. So that's all part of this legacy capital. So though, that's a way, again, without trying to make them into something more scientific than it is, you know, we've, we've actually created a, a, an assessment called the family balance sheet where family members rate themselves in response to a bunch of statements under each capital, and then we can quantify and aggregate those results so that it helps families as a whole see, all right, you know, maybe we're, we're pretty good on the human capital front. You know, people are healthy, uh, they feel some purpose, but gosh, when it comes to financial education capital, people just, they don't know how to budget for themselves, right? They've never had to. They don't know how these trusts work and such, or maybe in, so, in relationship capital. Yeah, we basically get along, but when it comes to anything difficult, no, we can't have difficult conversations. Right? We veer away from those, like, like a lot of families do. So in other words, those are just examples, but doing that family balance sheet exercise can help people identify those strengths, those areas of opportunity, and then have very specific actions that they can take to work on the places where they need work. I love that you help just blow up the idea that an inheritance or a legacy is just money. And I think so many times people can get that misguided idea that if I'm handing down a legacy, it's just about the money. And by looking at the multiple forms of capital and really thinking about the human side and the human element, you really show that giving a legacy or creating a legacy is about desiring the flourishing of individuals and each person down your lineage. It's not just saying, how can I pass on $10 million and make that 10 million in the next generation turn into a hundred million? And how do I turn that next into a billion dollars? It's You're not just thinking about how can I grow money and dollars, but how can I make sure that this accomplishes its intended purpose? So you had said at the beginning, um, the idea of, and this was James Hughes had said in the beginning of all of his um, estate planning, that I'm trying to find the, the quote, but it was basically that um, this trust is a gift of love. Its purpose is to enhance the lives of the beneficiaries. You had said that at the beginning. And so why is it so important then? And how do you focus on individual flourishing, not just the whole family and the whole money? Oh, sure. Well, I'll, I'll be brief on this one. I'd say it's kind of obvious, I think, to all of us that a family, like any community, is made up of individuals, right? 
And so how can a family flourish as a, as a community if the individuals within it aren't flourishing? Now that's okay. like, as I said, it's kind of obvious, but mm -hmm. well, sometimes the obvious isn't so obvious to us. So very often when we're in a family with wealth or we're working with a family with wealth, the focus is on the family, right? You know, or as you were saying, like the hundred year plan, you know, for the family, uh, as if the individuals are kind of, you know, interchangeable building blocks. You know, mm. They're not, not so important. Now that's a surefire way I've found to discourage individuals and cause them to disengage and leading to family dissolution. Because the sense is, there's not really love or concern for me as an individual. It's all about, quote, the family and the wealth. So that, I say that recognizing that many family leaders will say to me, but I don't know about that, you know, this individual flourishing. I'm worried that that focus would cause people to go their own ways, to cause the family to dissolve into individuals' wishes. And in response to that, I'd say, I found just the opposite. And that's also the research that uh, Dennis and others have done has found just the opposite. That the more that individuals feel that their flourishing is advanced by being part of this family and working together, the more likely they are to engage with the family in a positive, enthusiastic, and creative way that ultimately will allow the family as a whole to flourish over time. I love that. And I think, I don't even remember which book it was in, but it was this idea that instead of just telling the stories of the older generation, having the older generation invest in finding out what the dreams and visions are of the children and grandchildren and making sure that children and grandchildren know that you are supporting them in their dreams, not just hoping that they'll carry on your dreams mm -hmm. for exactly. eternity. So, <laughs> so I think there's just, I hope as a listener, you can hear why we brought him on the show. I think there's just so much wrapped into this whole idea of legacy and wealth and family and, and having strong families and human flourishing. I do want to touch on character development before we leave this conversation. I think it's just such an important element. So where do you see the role of character development fitting and why is it so important for yourself and for your kids and how do you do it? <laughs> Again, <laughs> a giant question. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a lifetime's work in two minutes or so. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Uh, well, I, I guess I, I'd say to step back that um, I think most people recognize that character is important, right? I mean, when we think about big choices in life, whether it's um, you know getting married or uh, or who you vote for, the like, people start talking about character, right? It's not only just in intellect or positions or so forth. It's also who is the person, uh, who, what is their character? And especially when we face emergencies or crises, right? That's when people realize our right, character really counts and how you choose. Um, now, we live in a society here, at least in, in North America, that it really emphasizes, maybe even ex exaggerates, individual expression, right? That everybody has to kind of just be him or herself, express yourself, and so forth, which is, is, of course, a wonderful and important part of life, but it makes us very clumsy or embarrassed when we start talking about or trying to teach character, right? Mm. feel like, oh, am I, am I imposing or am I limiting the personal expression? I would say, let's not be so worried about that because we do it all the time, right? That is part of the center of parenting is the development of character. And as we were talking about earlier, right? We were talking about modeling for your children, using stories and so forth to, to help them catch values. 
that's the way family life works, right? So let's, let's accept that. Then as far as, well, how else do you develop character? Well, first of all, it's recognizing that it is an everyday, every moment matter, right? It's not some theoretical thing you got to be, you know, a PhD in philosophy to do, right? It's, it's every day. My, my mother has a sign on her desk uh, and has for many, many years that says, life is a series of choices, make the right one. And I remember as a kind of young adult looking at it and saying, it doesn't make any sense. It says a series of choices. Why does it make the right one? But then as I thought about it, maybe experienced some of the hard knocks of life and realizing that, you know, when you make a choice, you can't go back and have what was before that choice. You know, that it, as a series of choices, you make a choice now, this choice, and then it limits those choices that come after it to certain others, right? And so that's why I'd say for character development, really encouraging yourself and your children to think of life as a series of choices and that every moment matters. Every moment is an opportunity to ask, what is the right choice right now? So that's very empowering, I mm. think, for people as they Absolutely. think about character. And then, you know, one, I'll say two other things because I know we're running low on time here. Uh, first of all, for somewhat older children, like, you know, you say your eight-year-old or such who is, is interested in and what the psychologists would call the stage of industry, right? Like, what can I do in the world? How can I make stuff happen? You know, I, I want to I be involved. Um, I think for children of that age and, and older, really encouraging them to take responsibilities for things in their lives, right? So I like uh, General Wesley Clark's uh, comment he, he often makes in speech. He says, make your bed, right? Um, now, why is that important? Well, because it's pretty easy to do, right? It's something you do first thing in the morning. And if you do it right first thing, then whatever the rest of the mess of the day involves, you feel like I got something done right today. And, it, and again, it empowers you in the choices that you go on through the rest of the day. The lesson for families with significant wealth is don't do everything for your kids. Let them do stuff. Let them struggle with stuff. Don't have uh, nannies and household staff and teachers and everything do everything for them uh it's so much easier to do that i know as a parent it's so much easier to do that but it it does children no favors they don't learn the resilience the grit the industry to deal with life and to deal with the difficulties and to feel the accomplishment and enjoyment of dealing with those difficulties so again let them make their beds right take responsibility and then finally, I'd say for somewhat older children, although this works for young children too, if you have the right stories, really encourage them to engage with good stories. So whether that's, whether that's books or plays, movies, television shows, whatever, not just to watch and be entertained, but to engage with the characters, to, to ask and think for themselves, like, is this a good choice or not? What are the consequences of the choices involved here? Uh, would I want to be in that story myself, right? Um, and for young adults, really encourage them to find teachers, going back to something we were talking about even before we went live here, find good teachers. And I, by that, I mean not just people who are going to affirm your beliefs. And there's plenty of teachers who do that in order to kind of curry favor with students, but to really challenge you who ask real questions, who take life seriously, and who invite you to take life seriously, right? Children will rise to the occasion most of the time if you treat these things as serious topics. Our problem is that we often either put them to the side or we don't take them seriously. And as a result, we and our children 
kind of sync to that lowest common denominator. You know, I feel like I could hang on all of the words that you're sharing. This is just so rich with meaning in every facet of our life. I just love how you shared about um, that stage of industry, taking responsibility, putting yourself into the story, not just seeing a movie as entertainment, but really asking the Socratic questions about what does this mean and would I choose this? I think that's just powerful for for understanding your own hero's journey as you're going about your life and figuring out how the stories that you're listening to and watching can help you discover your own life journey and your path. So this is profound. Bruce, did you want to jump in and Rachel, share? Rachel, I, I, I want to just emphasize one thing that, that Keith, Keith has said a lot of things over this that I really, really enjoy. But the one thing he just said may have gotten lost with the listeners is you, you said something to the effect that let them enjoy overcoming their adversity. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I have tried to um, tell when I was an educator, when I try when people think I have something to say that may, maybe is uh, important because of my, my, uh, my age mm-hmm. <laughs> of dealing with things, is that people don't realize that there's an actual enjoyment of overcoming something that we actually take away from people when we, we don't allow them to fail. Right. And, and that comes back to that. What I said earlier, there are no green lights if there are no red lights, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and when I was an educator, people would say to me, well, uh, you got to give them some self-esteem here. You, you don't, you can never give a person self-esteem. Right. You can you can allow them to develop self-esteem by overcoming something. That's how you develop self-esteem. Um, and I think this is a very important part of what we are. There's nothing more important than what you said today and than that, because this is what happens in a family of wealth, I believe, or not even a family of wealth, but a family uh, that has some means mm-hmm. is that um, they don't allow their their child to struggle and actually feel good about doing something for themselves. And uh, I just wanted to emphasize that in closing that I think that was the, the biggest thing I think that people should pull out of this podcast. Thank you, Bruce. I think this has just been profound in so many ways. And Bruce, I appreciate you sharing that as well. And um, Keith, can you let our listeners know if they're interested in getting your books or finding out more about wise counsel research or connecting with you personally, just how would they go about doing that? Sure. Well, you know, we've talked about a number of the books, uh, complete family wealth cycle of the gift voice of the rising generation. Um, <laughs> there, there's complete family wealth. And here's um, another one. Yep. And then, uh, you know, one that we didn't talk about, but which behind the comments on trust, we wrote a book called family trust. So for families that are, you know, navigating any of those particular points of giving, rising, trust, uh, you can find those books on Amazon, et cetera. Um, so I, I suggest that as a starting point uh, for people. Um, yeah, certainly our website, uh, wisecouncilresearch.org, has a lot of uh, white papers, articles, videos, and such on some of these particular points. Um, I also mentioned the family balance sheet. So that's an online tool. So if uh, families are interested in taking the family balance sheet, uh, getting the results in a report, they can reach out to me at, just at my email address, Keith at wisecouncilresearch.com, uh, and can set them up with that. And then finally, you know, my work with individual families really focuses on consultation to help make wise decisions. 
it usually takes the form of um, you know, helping to prepare for and facilitate family meetings. That's intensive work. There's only so much of it I can do at any one time, and, and I'm pretty full up at present. But if listeners do want to talk about their situation, I'm always happy to have a conversation. And if I can't help in a given situation, I can try to connect uh, listeners with others who can. So again, feel free to reach out to me uh, via my email address there. Excellent. I think this is just a fabulous insight and really this peek into the window of understanding how we can up-level our mindset and our thinking around creating family wealth and creating true flourishing individuals in our kids and grandkids and whatever stage of life you are in right now. I think this applies to young kids who are maybe in their teen to 20 years and maybe they're not even married yet. You're thinking about what kind of impact you want to leave in the world. If you are a a parent of young children, you might be thinking about this from a different angle. If you have parents who are listening who have older children, you are thinking maybe differently if you're a grandparent. If you have no children at all, I think still you can be thinking about what does my legacy mean and how can I have this positive impact on the world. And I just really tremendously thank you, Keith, for sharing your time and your knowledge and your wisdom with us here today. Well, you're, you're welcome. It has been a lot of fun to uh, have this conversation, uh, you know, with people who really get it and, and see the importance of it. And I, I truly hope that it's uh, been beneficial to your listeners. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. And if you're listening, please remember in closing, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking, put in your name and primary email address, Click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com. Or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Cato's Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Cato's Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Cato's Capital Incorporated or Cato's Management Incorporated.